this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Mass Mutual. Mass Mutual helps business owners identify and prioritize the protection and financial strategies that are critical to the ongoing success of your business. With understanding the value of your business as the foundation, they can help address the core planning pillars, which includes your family, business, future, and team, so you can help minimize risk and protect what is most likely your largest asset. Every business owner will leave their business at some point in time, either by design or by default. Let MassMutual help you stay focused on the task at hand, running your business, while together in concert with your trusted advisors, help to create a financial roadmap for long-term success and an eventual exit that's on your terms. Visit MassMutual.com. So do you have a Rembrandt lurking in your attic? It's a term that acquirers use when they're describing a business that has some sort of asset that the owner has ignored, overlooked, forgotten about, that when properly leveraged could be worth an incredible amount of money. And my next guest, James Preble, built a company helping private equity groups identify when the target company they were about to invest in had a Rembrandt in the attic. They did something called digital due diligence. And I want you to listen to this through two lenses. First, James's story of selling a company is interesting in and of itself. But what's also interesting is digital due diligence. Because when a company does digital due diligence on your business, they're going to be identifying something that you could be better leveraging today. And my question for you is, why let the investor have that gain? Why not know now what drives the value of your company in the eyes of an acquirer and leverage that asset, that hidden gem, if you will, and build your business so that you can take advantage of some of that digital uh, asset that other people will find attractive. Here to tell you James's story through two lenses, number one, his own story, but also the things he looked for in companies that had a Rembrandt in the attic is James Preble. James Brebel, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Palladium Digital Group. So you guys were a digital agency of some sort. Tell me a little bit about this company. Sure. So, I mean, I think like any company that's quite young in its life, it goes through a few iterations before it finds the business that it it wants to be uh, and and the space that it operates in. So uh, we were born out of, I guess... Two uh, jobbing consultants who who had worked across you know a number of the big four had grown a little bit tired of uh, that way of working, uh, and and wanted to do I guess uh, digital consultancy that had kind of real impact for medium sized businesses where we could really get you know under the skin of operations. When you uh, say digital consultancy, do you mean? you know, like the thinking behind a digital strategy or do you mean the execution? Like I'm, when I think of digital agency, I think of making social media campaigns and making websites. Were you guys executing or, or more the strategy behind it? Yeah. Yeah. We couldn't be further away from that. So, so in, in essence, the, we always saw the agencies in, in our space as, as the executors, the social media campaigns, the SEO, the PPC. Mm-hmm. For us, it was about helping businesses find their digital future. So there was always an inherent need for businesses. I, I want to be more digital. I want to work with, you know, technology could make us a better business. Okay, well, let's stop and let's understand how and the real value behind that. That's so it was you, you and a partner? It's just you and one other person? It was just me and one other person, fully bootstrapped business, nothing but an idea and a, and a brand name in, in, our, in our head. Did you guys just divvy it up 50-50 or how did you decide what the company was worth in the early days? Yeah, so in, in, the, company, in the early days, it was easy to decide what the company was worth because it was worth nothing. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> Zero. We had, yeah. had nothing in the bank. Like I say, two, two ambitious guys with, with a dream. Um, and so we, we split that 50-50 
um, with a view to, I guess, taking our brand of consultancy, you know, advisory in, in the digital space to, to businesses you know, um, in and around the mid-market space that we thought we could, we could influence. And as I was saying, that, that iteration came real quick. Got it. If you want to be everything to everybody, you're nothing. And so really quickly, we realized we needed to find a specialism. And so what was the specialty that you guys chose? So, so that specialism was uh, within private equity and merger and acquisition. Um, I guess as, as, as guys that had previous experience in building things and developing things, you know, we'd been at the sharp end of digital within agencies once upon a time. I guess you, you get bored quite easily. You like to do things all the time. We like to solve problems. And we didn't want to narrow ourselves to a particular vertical, you know, financial services, pharmaceutical, e-commerce. What we wanted to do is maintain that breadth that we could work across, but we knew we needed a niche, a specialism. And private equity and, and M&A allowed us to do that because the very nature of these businesses is to buy and sell companies across a very broad spectrum. And all of these companies, when they're bought, they need to be worth more than, than what they were bought for when they exit. Well, to support that, they need you know, technology-led change, digital transformation, which is exactly the brand of consultancy we were offering. So for us, it felt a very neat fit. So let me make sure I, I get this. So, so, so a private equity group would hire you and they would say, James, I want you to look at this company. We're thinking of buying it. I want you to give us a sense of its digital potential. Could we transform this business with enough money and time and technology to, to be a digital leader? Is that, or is it, are there something flawed about the business that it will never have the, the ability to transform into a digital leader? Was that I mean, effectively what you're doing? Yeah. Your first description, John nailed it. I mean, it took, it took us, it took us several months to get there and, you, and you, you've got there in a minute. Um, but that's exactly what we set out to do. And that's exactly what we do do. Private equity firms will come to us as you described, we're thinking about buying this business how digitally competent is it? And, and what's the future for this business in the digital space? How far can we take it? And with our experience of, of building digital businesses, of working in digital businesses, of driving transformation when we were at consultancies, we're able to offer uh, an expert perspective on the potential of that business. And just like you said at the end there, if we don't think there's potential, why? Interesting. It's a fascinating niche. You know, in the M&A world, they refer to this. There's a sort of analogy, you may have heard it, a Rembrandt in the attic. Is that something you've heard? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the Rembrandt in the attic, the sleeping giants, you know, the next right. unicorn, all of those sorts of things. Yeah. Am I sitting? I think one of the things we get asked a lot, and, and this, this is the same for, for, you know, those that are, are trying to build a business to sell. Often the private equity firm or the, the, the investor is looking, does this business realize its own potential? And can I help it realize its potential? Uh, which is, you know, often how these relationships start and how you know, businesses come to be sold because they work with a partner who can help them realize their potential. And the private equity group presumably is trying to buy that, to use this Rembrandt in the attic analogy, they're trying to buy that home without tipping off to the owner that they're sitting on this, you know, incredibly valuable piece of art. To what extent did you have to keep your cards close to your vest when interacting with the owner of these target companies so as not to tip them off that they may be sitting on digital assets that they're not taking advantage of? Yes, I know that's interesting because there's a degree of discretion. You know, I, I think ultimately in that stage, so there's two parts of our business. There's the diligence part, which is for the private equity investor. And our, we're, we're duty bound to tell them what we see and where we believe the potential is. But the second part, half of our business is working with the invested companies to help them realize their digital potential. So you kind of have to excite both parties. You want, that, you want the, the company that's about to be invested in to be excited about what the future holds for them and that there's, part, there's a partner here that's going to help them get there. On the flip side, you want to hold a little bit back to the private equity firm and like, we've, we've got something here that, that we can really accelerate. Oh, that's a fine line to toe. It is. Threading the needle. And then, of course, you know, as, as the premise of this kind of uh, a chat is about, you know, the, the folks of this chat, then being on the receiving end of that, you know, and questioning whether or not the, the guys who, who bought us 
actually see more potential than we've realized. You, 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 the, the psychology behind that, you start to question, can I get more here? Should, should I be valuing us more than, than we are being valued? Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to we'll get to the sale in a minute, but I'd love to ask first how you grew this business beyond just you and your partner. Because here's what my experience is: you you're dealing with a very very sophisticated customer, a private equity group among the most sophisticated people in the business world. That's gonna, I would imagine, require a equally sophisticated you know, staff compliment for you, you and your partner to be able to so-called go head to head or toe to toe with a customer in terms of, of just the, 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 the level of the conversation, you'd need to be pretty sophisticated. How did you go you know, beyond just you and your partner to hire people uh, because I think a lot of, a lot of those people aren't for hire. They're, digital consultants who would rather have their own shingle and be, you know, hired, you know, by the hour, by the project, than go work for a company uh, like Palladium. So I'd be curious to know how you, you manage to scale beyond just you and your partner effectively and, and hire employees. Yeah, look, that's a, that's a great question. It's one I love talking about as well. I think I'll, 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 I will forever remember the, the employee zero one as it were, the very first person that we hired when we were brave enough. And I can remember having debates over the salary we think we could afford. And, and you look back on that now and you, you laugh at yeah, how, how cautious you were about that. But I think one thing we realized, and, and for a long time, as you, as you go through stages of scale, ultimately you have to get to the point where the business isn't the two founders, but actually the business operates despite the two founders in, in, in some respects. Um, and, and I think that starts with, so, so firstly, how did we grow the business? We were, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not gonna tell you it all happened by happy accident. Actually, we had a very good plan. We had a really, really good plan. Once, once that light bulb moment, the, the one light bulb moment in the business's history, which was, we should do this in private equity. Our model fits perfectly. We like to be broad, digital adds value. Let's align ourselves there. After that moment, that's when the planning starts. What are the associations we need to join so that we have reputation and we can meet people? You know, what does the service offering need to look like? How and who are we going to network? You know, where have we got reference models that we can draw from? Um, you know, where, where have we got the most experience? What are the skills gaps that we've got that we're going to need to hire real quick in order to deliver into this space? And, and genuinely, it did. It came from, from proper planning sitting down, writing a strategy, setting some numbers and, and monitoring them. You know, as a, as a, as a young business in, in today's times, tracking the impact of your activity with the right setup of your CRM and your marketing activity and a correct plan is really easy. You know, impact of activity on revenue can be tracked all the way through. But how did you guys do it? Like, I'm, cur I'm genuinely curious uh, did you like who was employee number one? What beyond just the founder? Like, was it a, like an administrative person? Like another like deep strategy guy or gal? Like, who, no, so how, we, who did you hire? Yeah, so so we we had a, a you know, we had a, a kind of a commitment to hiring young raw talent that we could shape in some respects. So we weren't ready in the early stages to hire the next mid mark mid level or senior talent. Yeah, we, we, one, we couldn't afford it. Two, we were worried we wouldn't have the work to stimulate those individuals. But instead, what we wanted was young, hungry consultants who were eager to learn, you know, who'd perhaps done first job, really wanted to be part of that startup culture and, and grow and benefit as we grew. Um, and so that was our commitment. The first employee was someone we knew, someone we'd worked with. They were in a, a reasonably junior level we brought them on as a consultant and immediately set to kind of educating them into our ways of working, our models, methodologies, and you know, just incredibly bright individual she was um, who, who really helped accelerate kind of capacity. Suddenly you had someone who could help you produce things that, that you needed to produce. You could lighten the load and spread things around you and, and soon you get confidence that they can run without you. And that, that's how it started. How did you uh, how did you convince an incredibly bright 
consultants to join you and your partner? I mean, here's my skepticism, like Deloitte, McKinsey, KPMG, they all have digital like strategy arms, right? And they're, and they're growing like a weed. Like that's where the growth, it's not in tax and accounting and audit. It's like digital strategy is where they're all placing massive bets. McKinsey is going to Oxford and Cambridge and saying, give me the top 1% of your graduates. I want to hire them right now. How did this little company with just you and your partner, like literally punch above your weight to convince this brilliant junior consultant to join you guys and not, you know, enter the fast track at Deloitte or KPMG or McKinsey? Again, again I think you've got you to be really honest with yourself. We lent on our relationship with them. We knew who they were. You know, they knew who we were. We trusted each other. And there was a journey there. There was a vision. Like I say, that plan... Without that plan, I don't think we would have attracted people because what we did in the early years was every time we were ready to hire a new person and they came in, we were so transparent. Here's the plan. Here's where we are. Here's where we're going to. Here's your role in that plan. Here's what we'll give you. you know, and it wasn't about remuneration. It wasn't about you know, salaries and bonus. Here's how we'll help you evolve. Here's how we'll help get you exposure to kind of senior leaders in businesses. Here's how we'll help you prove your you know, consultancy credentials. And we don't expect them to stay forever. We, use us. We're your launch pad. And we were really honest about it. And, and I think that plan served us really, really well for at least the first 18 months as we started to bring staff on. Um, because I, I love it, that. I love that idea of the, of, of the launch pad because so many companies, like, um, you know, McKinsey is famous for this, right? Like come to work at McKinsey for a couple of years if we don't think you're going to be partner in 10, we're going to find you into a, into a client's business and, and it's going to be amazing. You're going to have a couple of years of the kind of McKinsey way, and then you're going to hire us when you're you know, a, a senior person of that business. So this idea of a kind of a launch pad is such a cool idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to recognize that. I think to all, you know, any businesses I speak to that, that are now in startup mode, the employee number one or two, three, four, they're probably not, some might stay forever, but it's unlikely. You, you might be that launch pad to their next big thing, but embrace that. Enjoy the years that, that you do work together. How did you charge these private equity groups for your services? Was it hourly or did, by the project? But did you have them on a retainer? Like how, how did that work? Yeah, I think again, I mean, that evolves um, as, you, as you get a little bit more mature. And I think as business confidence grows, that changes. But how did it evolve for you guys? So for, for us, we started with fixed price. Yeah, we drew a line in the sense that this is, this is how much this is going to cost, give or take. And, you know, very quickly you realize it's not the way. Because what happens is, can we just have a bit of this? Could you just do a bit of that? Can we have a revision here? And very soon you're starting to compromise margin because you're way in excess of what you thought you needed. Scope creep, the worst. Creep. <laughs> yeah. And what's the, what's the, there's, there's two knock-on impacts with scope creep that I think everyone needs to be aware of is number one, I, I, I'm not making my margins. And I mean, cash in the bank is everything, right? If I'm paying out because I've got some freelance consultants supporting on a day rate, I'm losing money right now. And it can get to the point where you are paying to do the work rather than actually making money. The second part of that is if there's scope creep, if you fixed priced it and it keeps rolling on, you, you, your capacity to take, take the next project reduces you know, or, or another project is compromised. So we realized very quickly, you, you can't fix price these six. What you have to do is time and materials. Here's a team. Here's the number of days that we think you need to deliver this program. And should we get to the end of the program and it's not delivered? Well, we have an agreement that we will continue until it is delivered within reason. You know, and, and we will be compensated accordingly. So we give them a kind of a, a range in which we work within. And that has served us very, very nicely. Got it. So you move to a kind of an hourly or day rate, if yeah, you will. Day rate, day rate. Yeah. Bl a blended yeah. team day rate. So you take the full team, you look at the average day rate, you put that forward as your day rate, and then you run it on a time and materials basis. Got it. How big did you get this company before you decided to sell? So we were... Um, where were we? We, we were probably just around 1.2 million pounds um, mm -hmm. when, when we decided to sell in terms of mm -hmm. turnover. I think we probably had about 12 or, or so staff at that point, maybe, maybe yeah, 10 or 11 staff. Along those lines. Did you have any sense of what it would be worth? Like, were you, like, I, don't, I don't know what digital consultancies trade at, but is there sort of a, 
a rough range of yeah, I mean, look, we had, a, we had a really good idea because of the private equity work that we do. We'd seen so many businesses and, and been privy to kind of the, the, the transaction values. So we had a really good understanding of what the multiple should be um, and, and where the value was. So, you know, we knew it would be on a multiple of our profit. Um, we expected it to, to live within a range, you know, of, of professional services at that time between like five and seven, and probably never going to get higher than that for an early stage business. If we're really honest, we were, you know, not mature enough. So you could start to get a sense of, of what you were worth. Um, and, but when we get into the details of kind of what we were looking for, um, and I guess, again, another thing that I, I do talk to a lot of, of businesses about when they're getting into this process is, depending on how that deal is structured, the first payment should not, you should not be fixated on that first payment. Because you're, if you're an early stage business selling, you need to be fixated on where you can get to, not where you are today, and make sure that you're getting value for where you get that business to. That's certainly the, the, the attitude we went in with. Got it. Okay. So I want to, I definitely want to dig into that for sure. So you're a million two or so uh, pound turnover, yeah. Uh, you're figuring it's somewhere in the kind of five to seven times EBITDA-ish, yeah. roughly. Um, what triggered you to want to sell? Seems like a fairly early stage of the company. Uh, what Was there a trigger or what happened? There's a couple of things. I've been in some, both of us had been in businesses in the past that had opportunities to sell, but always put it off in the hope that they could get the higher valuation, the higher valuation, the higher valuation, and eventually finding that they're not, they're not as desirable as they once were and, and, and they're not achieving the exit. So there was definitely a kind of when it comes, we need to consider it um, because it tells us we're doing something right. So, so that, was the first, that was always in the back of our mind. But the one thing that really triggered it was we knew we were in a niche that we could exploit. And we knew that we had a, a genuinely, and still do to this day, had a really fantastic service offering. And I don't say that because it's my company. We, we had a great service offering and it was being adopted and we were getting great feedback and winning work. We had no right to win at our size, but because we were committed to quality and delivery. But I always felt we were operating with the handbrake slightly on because every day there was a check of the bank account. Have we got enough cash flow? Can we afford to make this higher? We should be investing here, here, and here. And you're not making decisions that are right for the business. You're making decisions that are right for the bank account and making sure you can put food on the table, that you, can, you take a responsibility. You've now got seven mouths to feed in terms of employees on top of the directors. You know, we spent the first, I think, 18 months taking no salary at all, yeah, just, just enough to keep us going. Um, so yeah, so you, 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 you operate with this handbrake on, you kind of, you, you're not doing it the way you should be. And when the opportunity came along and because of the way they offered to, to, to structure a deal that would allow us to take a very, very thin slice up front and put a lot of the earn out potential in the back of the deal, because we backed ourselves, that appealed hugely to us. Um, it allowed us to operate without the handbrake on. Got it. Okay, so you felt like you had this handbrake on can you, and maybe, I mean, I think people kind of intuitively would understand what you mean by that. Always checking the bank account. I, I totally get that. Can you give me a specific example of how that changed your decision-making? How, like, I'd love to hear like a real life example of a hire you didn't make, an opportunity you didn't take advantage of because you felt like, ooh, I, you know, just don't, sure, not sure we have enough cash to sort of do yeah, that. Yeah, there's, there's, there's one that still haunts me today. Yeah, that we, we met um, with a, a data strategist. Data has always been on, on the roadmap um, or had been at that time and, and, and today is now part of what we do. Um, but data strategy, data diligence was absolutely key. And we met someone who was absolutely fantastic, brilliant track record, great pedigree, um, and really liked our plan. You know, that famous plan again, really liked the vision that we had for the business, was really bought into it, and essentially said, you know, after us courting him for a long time, said, I'm ready. I I'm ready to take the plunge. Let's do this. And, and he wanted a salary, you know, in, in, in the higher ranges um, of, of our pay structure. 
like hundreds of thousands of pounds a year? No, or? no, no, not at that time. You know, again, in, in those days, probably kind of, I don't know, maybe 60, 70, 80,000 around, around mm-hmm. that band somewhere. And, and we were reluctant. We said, we can't do this. We can't afford this. This is, this is too much to bear. Um, and I guess we looked at that and said, can we feed it? You know, are we going to get the business for it? And we passed up the opportunity. And he's gone on to great things. He would have been a brilliant addition for us. Um, and, and we always look back, both of us, on, on that opportunity and regret not doing it sooner because we've done it now, but, but you know, with someone else. But, you know, we, we look back on that one and think, we, it really wasn't that big a burden on the business. We should have done that. But now we don't think like that. Like I say, we, we, we think for the best of the business rather than the impact that it will have on short-term cash flow. It's so funny. I've heard that uh, before that, that when the owner and it's the owner's money, uh, you, 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 there's a different way of thinking about the business, right? It's, it's almost like you're, you're, you're spending money that is yours personally. And then when you have backing like a private equity group or, you know, financial backer of some sort, the, the, the reins are off and you, you've got the opportunity to kind of make different decisions. So you felt like you're in your own words, sort of, you had the handbrake on as you grew. Were you approached uh, with an acquisition or did you shop the business? Like what, how did you, did you get on your front foot and actually kind of start talking to people? What was your, we, we didn't shop the business, but we, we, we were, we were picked out. So, so um, you make a lot of connections, obviously working within private equity. And um, we had um, with a, a non-executive director on our board who advised us around decision-making um, and we told, mentioned to him that, that we'd had, you know, some interest from, from private equity. Um, and he said, well, I'm involved with a business that I think would make a great home for you. Um, he said, if that becomes the case, I can't be your non-executive director anymore, but you know, um, you want to explore that too. Why was he or she on the board of the other company or, or had an operating role? Or? Well, I think it was about to go over to that other company at that okay. time, at that time, wasn't there. Um, and, and we said, look, we're interested in exploring. So we're great. You know, look, I'm, I'm going to be working over there. So we, I'll, I'll mention you when I get there. And I, I think I'm going to step down from the NED side of things anyway with you guys. Find no problem. Off, off he went. And, and sure enough, you know, a couple of months later, you know, we want to talk to you. We're interested. We think you've got a good proposition. You know, before you kind of explore these PE deals further, talk to us. This was Next 15 Communications. And this was Next 15 Communications, that's right. Tell me about Next 15. Like, what, what do they do and what did they see in you guys? So they are, I feel like they're like the, 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 the kind of um, marketing data technology services world biggest kept secret because, you know, there's, there's 23 brands in the group. <clears throat> Most of them have got, you know, really, really good and well-known you know, reputations um, all over the world. And essentially, they're, they're a collective of, of a number of brands that offer <clears throat> marketing, professional services, data services, technology services, uh, independently, but operating under a single umbrella. So benefiting from kind of group efficiencies, cross-pollination of clients, et cetera. Got it. And, and so what was the next step? I mean, you got a call from them. <clears throat> what was your reaction to their initial outreach? So I think... I think our reaction was one of skepticism to start with um, in that, you know, we're such an early stage business. We're never going to get the full potential. We're never going to get the full value. Um, our experience was, of course, again, in M&A private equity, where, you know, the majority of your cash is paid to you, you know, your sales value right up front. We want to acquire 100% or we want to acquire 59%, as it were. Here's your cash. And then we'll split some more further down the line. That's classic PE kind of model deal. Um, and so we were worried that it would be very similar in, in, in trade. So there's a bit of skepticism, but of course there's some excitement because you know that you've got something that somebody wants and that's a real mark of kind of the quality that you've started to deliver and the standing you've got in market. Uh, and so the next steps were that, that we met with them and, and they made their intentions pretty clear that they could see a home for us, um, that we would be a good fit into, into the business. Um, and I think they just played it I mean, magnificently when I think about it, because the next step was for them to step back and introduce us to all the other brands that they bought along the way. So we were now surrounded having meetings with former kind of business founders that had been acquired by the group and hearing their stories. 
and they were very genuine stories about the, the pluses and the minuses of, of, of doing deals uh, and joining the group. Um, but it gave us nothing but encouragement because everybody we met, it, it felt like, you know, looking in the mirror, they'd all been through the same journey. They'd all kind of had success off the back of it. They'd all operated with the handbrake on and then kind of seen success as business confidence grew. Uh, and that really attracted us. And so you said there were 23 brands? I think there's about 23 brands in the group, 21 to 23 how, brands. Yeah. How many of the, the founders of these brands did you meet with? I reckon we met with about five. Because a lot so, of them are US-based. Did you get us, how did you, in your mind, reconcile that, that, that the, the guys from Next15 are likely to serve up to you the five or six success stories and that there may be skeletons in the closet that you're not talking to? Did you go out of your way to find, you know, talk to people that weren't, like, hey, you should talk to Bob or Cindy, like that weren't like strongly endorsed by management at so how, how, how we knew we weren't being fed the good stories is we were allowed to pick any of the brands in the group that we wanted to meet. Wow. So we, and and we, we said, this one, this one, this one, this one, these all feel like brands similar to us, similar journey, similar trajectories, bigger, obviously, but um, in complementary service areas, they're the ones we want to speak to. And the answer was, no problem. Speak to anybody you like. Wow, that's got to give you a lot of confidence. Yeah, yeah. Huge, huge confidence. I mean, from meeting one, the very first founder we met, we left there and said, if the rest is like this, we're in. And what was it that that first founder said that, it, that made you so confident? I think the fact that he joined a 1.3 million pound business and was now doing about 20 million uh, helped <laughs> in, in a very short space of time. Kind of gives you a little bit of, uh, this could be us type thing. But I think more than anything, the way that the group operates is they bring the brands in, they provide them with kind of food and shelter. Let's, let's use that analogy, but they leave you to operate. And, and that was the most appealing thing for us. Hmm. Interesting. And so when did the specter of valuation come up? Was it discussed like verbally or did they put an offer in front of you or how, there how did that work? There was a model that was put in front of us again, um, what we liked about that is that we could flex it to suit us. So the model was put in front of us. It says, hey, here's how we value your companies. Yeah, we're going, to take your, we're going to take your profit. We're going to apply a multiple to it. And that's going to be your initial upfront value. Okay. Pretty standard so far. The difference is, you know, as a, as a PLC, we want to acquire 100% of this company. We have to. Okay. Understood again. But how we kind of phase your, your, your remuneration, let, let's, let's talk about that. You know, maybe we do a little bit now and some down the back end as you grow, and then you're worth more. We value you more further down the line. So, so that flexibility that you don't perhaps get in, in kind of your traditional PE M&A space, that, that, was, um, that was really appealing to us. You, you lost me a little bit. So the offer was a multiple of profit, but what profit they were applying that multiple against could, could vary based on when you chose to take the money. So if you yeah, take it all up front, it's a smaller number. It's the same multiple, but it's a smaller number. If we, you take that multiple in five years time, hopefully your profit has grown a lot and we will still apply the same multiple. Exactly. Don't, don't you just love that risk reward dynamic? I think that's what gets the kind of the entrepreneur out of bed in the morning. Sometimes it's kind of, how much do I back myself? Okay. Here's your profit. Let's apply a multiple. You want, you're going to take the lot. Okay. Or maybe a small slice now, but next year we'll reapply the multiple to, to your, your new profit. And then further down the line, we'll reapply the multiple to your new profit. Again, yeah, I'm going to keep coming back to it. We had a plan and we believed in it. And that plan got us to a bigger number further down the line. And so, of course, we went into negotiation saying, oh, we'll take a thin slice now, please. We, we, let's, let's split the rest of it kind of a few years hence because we've got a long way to go. And with your help, we're going to get really big and let's all enjoy the spoils. Yeah, yeah, that, that can work for sure if you've got confidence that, that you are indeed going to be able to, to grow profitability in the, in the um in the context of a, of an acquirer. Don't get me wrong. It's a huge risk. It is a risk that, that, that strategy, but you know, when you're, when you're very early stage and you can see the trajectory in front of you, um, I think, I think it was an educated gamble. Yeah. Yeah. I can hear people, listeners going, yeah, but you, you took a huge risk in, 
in doing that, because if you just kept going and funding it yourself, you would have obviously enjoyed all the spoils, but also had more options and not be beholden to head office for decision-making, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. But it, again, it, market dynamics dictate that a little bit. We were, in our, we were in our space. We had it kind of to ourselves, but for how long? And with their help, we have accelerated. You know, I, I mean, look, we did triple-digit growth first year. Yeah. Wow, good for you. Yeah. And, 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 and we, we're very, we, we were keen to super, super, supercharge that, that part of what we did, you know, the, the consultancy into private equity. We were keen to supercharge that before market caught up. And this for us, was it, it came, it was opportunistic and, and we think it was, it was the right time for us. Uh, are you able to share what multiple of profit uh, they were offering? No. Okay. <laughs> I, I, that's the one piece that, uh, I've got a big note here that says, no. <laughs> Don't share that. Yeah, no, that's, that's fine. I'm, I'll, uh, I, but I, I understand the model. So what proportion of your business, what proportion of the profits did you take up front versus defer to the future? Oh, we were like, I think sub 20. Sub 20%. 20%, yeah. And then the rest, did you tie it to a specific year or did you blend it over a, a number of years? And I think other people would be curious to know, can you, can you decide to sell it at any year or is there a fixed year in the future which you've signed up to say no? I mean, you, you, know? you, can't, you can't go forever. I mean, eventually, you know, I think there was, there was uh, we could push it, I guess, as, as, as far as we could. But one, I think we might lose a bit of momentum if we pushed it out too far. You know, and two, if it's too short, you know, you're not going to reach up to the, to the numbers you think you're going to get to. So, so for us, it's very much, okay, so this is year one. Let's then take a year off. Let's not do anything in the next year in terms of, of the exit because we need to invest in the team. We need to build and we need to grow and it's going to be an investment year. Let's go in the following year. And that's what we did. And then let's go the year after that. And then the year after that, let's close it out. So we put some so second, third and fourth year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Second, third, and fourth year. Allow us the first year. Let's invest. Let's grow. Let's develop. And then let's go after that. You mentioned invest. What commitments did you get from Next15 around investment? Uh, did you get them to agree to a specific amount of money that they would be willing to invest in no. Palladium? No, we didn't. We didn't. But... Um, I think as one of the smallest companies ever to join the group, um, which again, we saw a real pride in actually. The fact that they would take the time to, to acquire us, they saw something. No, we, we didn't get a number. But what they did say was, if you need it, we have it. You know, you, you feel reassured. And we'd spoken to all the, the, the other owners, you know, of course, who had benefited from said investment. And we have modest reasonably modest investment requirements. It was, it was much more, um, I guess, access to international markets that they gave us through their footprint. The regulatory environment in which we work needed a lot of legal support and, and they were able to provide that, the HR capability, the finance capability, the bit that allowed us to do what we do best and not all of the stuff around the periphery. That was, that was what they offered, plus you know, any investments we needed to make in team technology and um, and so on. You know, I've interviewed a bunch of folks in the, the sort of professional services realm, admittedly, mostly marketing agency owners. And what I hear a lot is that uh, the pitch that the consortium of companies goes is, look, we've got 21 brands and we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, each of these brands work with all these wonderful clients and we're going to cross pollinate all the brands and it's going to be great. The reality for many of them is that each of those brands is run by a leadership group who consider their clients their territory. And so they've had a 12-year relationship with Procter & Gamble, with Ford, with Microsoft, you name the big brand, and you rock up and say, great, we're all part of the same family. Can I go talk to Procter & Gamble? And they look at you and go, not under, without, you know, like coming through me first. Did you run into any of that sort of uh, resistance from the other brands saying, hey, like back off, hands off my clients? So... <clears throat> No, we didn't, and there's a reason. Because, and it's a piece of advice I would offer to anybody 
selling their business into a group, especially if you're marketing a services business into a group, do not sell it if you think it's going to give you access to new clients. Because exactly as you describe, it is like that. We came into this group with no expectation on cross-pollination of client, mostly because the clients that they work with aren't clients that we would touch, but because we had a business development machine. That wasn't part of the problem. Part of the problem was operations and capital to, to invest. That's why we joined the group. Sure, if an opportunity came along, we'd be delighted to support on it. But it was never part. So the future plan that we put to them before before being bought that says this is where we're going to go with your help, at no point said, and you'll provide us with leads or or access to to new clients because it doesn't happen for exactly the reasons you've described. If, If capital was the main reason you joined... Have you, did you consider other sources of capital? Like, did you think maybe we'll kind of raise some money? I had all these private equity connections. Presumably you could have raised a minority round or maybe even taken on some bank debt. Did did you, did you kind of weigh all the pros and cons to the different ways to finance the growth? Yeah, we we did because raising money is really easy, Mm -hmm. really easy. People don't know where to put it. There's a, there's a lot of dry powder. So, so actually getting capital on favorable terms is, is straightforward. And for small businesses, I mean, you can get more capital than you need, which can get you into some trouble too. So that's obviously something to, to kind of bear in mind. Um, but that said, it was more than that. Yeah, yes, there was the investment side of things. Absolutely was. Another part of it was we went from being a 20, or, you know, I think at the time, like I say, 12-person boutique to part of a global network of 3,000 people working across the globe. And it immediately created a reassurance to clients. As we went to clients, instead of, you know, so how big are you? The question that all the agency owners get, how big are you? How many clients have you got? How long have you been going? And we would say, oh, well, we're a niche arm of, of the Next 15 group. We do the digital consulting for private equity, 12 specialists, five associates, and 3,000 employees worldwide operating in 22 countries stops. Boom. you got credibility. <laughs> you got credibility. Love it. That's what we were buying. That's what we were buying into as well. And, and that's, yeah. So it was, it was capital, but it was also credibility that the, that Next15 brought you. Capital, credibility, and scale, because they took away the operational headache. You know, the, the yeah. bits that we weren't good at, the HR, the finance, the legal. Yep. 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 Makes sense. Makes sense. I'd be remiss in actually, before I ask you that, you, you mentioned that you, you didn't take any of, of the profits in year one of the acquisition post acquisition, uh, but you chose to take some in year two, some in year three and some in year four. What year are you in? Three. And how much has your profit improved since you took the first 20%? Mm. I would say something like 300%. So three times more profitable than you were when you took the 20%. Correct. Fantastic. What has been the most surprising thing about being part of Next15 that you did not expect before you did the deal? Um. I think the camaraderie amongst the CEOs is absolutely incredible. Hmm. So you're very disconnected because you have, you are very separate groups yet there's a bond because you've all been through the same process. You're all pulling in the same direction. You're all working for the same group. You all believe in the group's vision, which is to make clients a better version of themselves. So we all buy into that side of it. And as a result, so when, when we had obviously our global pandemic last year in March and a lot of the businesses in the groups or clients pulling back revenue, I, I don't, I've never seen anything like it. CEOs I haven't met giving me a call. How's your business? Is everything okay? How can we work together and help each other? Me calling CEOs that I haven't met saying, listen, I know you're probably having a tough one because of the market that you operate in, events or whatever that might be. You know, if there's anything we can do to support, 
it was astonishing, honestly. Uh, the, the camaraderie from from a from a bunch of reasonably geographically disconnected individuals coming together to support each other with that umbrella network from Next15, who were also incredibly supportive, I, I think almost justified every decision we'd ever made at that point. That's great. That's great. I'd, remiss, I'd be remiss in not asking you about digital due diligence because everybody listening to this podcast, most people have a business. They own a company and they want to sell it. When they go to sell it, some will be subject to digital due diligence. So I'd love for you to uh, to give them a heads up on the kind of things that they that you, in your capacity as someone who would be hired to do this level of due diligence, would look for in in a business that was a, an acquisition target? Like what's, what are the things that you'd look at and say, wow, that's a Rembrandt in the closet or the ceiling or the attic. And then what are the deal killers? The things that you'd be like, hold on, do not buy this company for any amount of money. This is a problem. Let's start with why you wouldn't buy it. Let's do it the other way around. Sure. Why, why wouldn't, you know, what, what are we going to find that's going to tell us to tell our clients, hey, you need to stay away from this. The number one thing is typically some bespoke software development that makes the business utterly dependent on a couple of developers or individuals where they cannot find a justification for why an off-the-shelf solution or a more open-source solution wasn't sought. Because that, for an investor, is nothing but risk. These, the developers get hit by a bus who can maintain it. That code base, which is super niche, stops being supported. How's the product going to evolve? And for people who aren't really digitally savvy, they don't know, they, they've hired developers, they have no clue whether they used X or Y. Like, what are, the, are there ways to, uh, to know what code base your software or your, your technology is built on? So I guess it's less about the code base and the software, the technology, the software maybe is, is the point. It's less about the code base because I guess today most modern development techniques that they use open source kind of technology and coding frameworks. It's, it's much more about, did you just go and build something that you could have bought somewhere? You know, is the solution offered? Have you just gone and bought a booking management system when there's 10 recognized booking management systems in market today that you could have bought and customized because they're supported globally and adopted universally you know, hmm. by, by businesses. And yet you saw to build your own version that needs specific support, that, that, can, be, that can be a deal killer. Um, and then the other one that can be a deal killer is, I guess, in, in the digital space, there's, there's marketing practices that aren't sustainable. So where the business is over-reliant on a single channel to generate its, its leads or its opportunities. If you're an e-commerce business, maybe you're a marketing services business and you sell a, a particular piece of software, if you are over-reliant on SEO or over-reliant on paid search or social media, even let's even talk about a referral network you know, or a channel like that, if you're over-reliant on one area, that's risk. So anything that can be deemed risk, I guess, is the, is the deal killer. Diversified sales models, they love them. You know, markets with more headroom in there so you're not capped at a certain space. Businesses love them, of course. So they're the sort of things that might kill a deal. Got it. Okay, that's super helpful. So I've captured an over-reliance on one channel and any bespoke software where you've got a couple of developers who know all the code and nobody else. Uh, what about the other side? What is it that you see a Rembrandt in the attic and you're like, oh my gosh, these guys are sitting on a gold mine. They don't, don't have they don't know. That, that, that's why I deliberately went the, 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 the bad things first because actually flip it around the other way. If you developed a piece of bespoke technology that you cannot buy in market, that has a justified need in a space, you are sitting on a gold mine. If you have built something that, that can't be bought off the shelf, that's difficult to customize, but is serving a market you know, and, and doing well and growing, you own some IP, you own, you own some technology that commands a much greater multiple because technology is scalable. If it's a licensed business, if it's a product that goes on license, that's infinitely scalable. You don't need to have more headcount to make more revenue. You're in a great space. 
Similarly, if you, I mean, if you own a subscription business, you, know, you don't need to add more headcount to make more revenue. You need to keep the customers and make sure they don't churn. Those sorts of businesses, they command, they command the, the, the really big multiples. Or if you're operating a niche and you've got absolute specialism and it's very difficult to replicate it again, they, they, they do well. And then finally, and the reason I talked about the diversified channel mix, if you are a business that is operating with a well-diversified channel mix, so we often talk about the marketing flywheel, so component parts operating together to deliver optimum outcome, which means if you start to get outbidded in one area, that's okay because you've got other channels. If you lose some SEO rankings, that's okay. You've got your other channels. If you've got that interplay between your marketing channels and you've built nice big defensible moats because you've got good strong positions and intelligent bidding strategies and lots of data to support your decision-making, yeah, you are a very attractive proposition. Love it. This has been so helpful on two levels. One, as a story on Built to Sell Radio, I think your, your story is fascinating, but also helping people think through this digital due diligence is really, really uh, an important and growing area. So thanks, James. I appreciate it. If, if people want to learn more about what you do and, and how to reach you, what's, where would you direct them to? Okay, if anyone wants to reach me, I think, you know, find me on, on, on LinkedIn, James Preble. There's not many of us, especially them, James Preble's working at Palladium Digital Group. So you'll find <laughs> me pretty quickly on there. Um, you know, and of course, you can visit um, palladiumdigital.co.uk uh, where you'll find all my contact details too. Awesome. James, thanks for doing this. Pleasure, John. Thank you so much. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.